Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. <clears throat> what is the chief end of man? Remember the last part of that now, as we come to uh, a conclusion. Trashing and treasuring the OPC. <laughs> there are legitimate criticisms of our church, and we should take them to heart. We should be brought to our knees. We should repent. Repentance just doesn't characterize the outset of our experience with God. It's part of our walk. So there is legitimate criticism, and we should be sensitive <coughs> and alert. But there is also rancorous attack, and it's important that we know the difference. There is that uh, a popular attack that doesn't really have much content. The attack goes like this. The OPC doesn't grow. Well, that's not true altogether. I mean, we have grown. Uh, we started out with uh, very few. Um, we made it over 19,000. That was before this last General Assembly in our statistical report. <laughs> A few losses this past year. But you know, when that, uh, that was being traded back and forth, uh, this problem, this criticism of the OPC was small, we don't grow, of course, what is meant, we don't grow faster, but I want you to keep things in perspective. I figured out at our 50th celebration, if we continue to grow at the, at the rate we grew for our fi first 50 years over the next 300 years, we will be a denomination of excess of 20 million. Yeah, you have to keep things in perspective. You see. <laughs> yeah, but but, uh, but believe it or not, yeah, for what it's worth, at the end of our 50 years, we were a bigger church than the PCUSA was at the end of its first 50 years. Interesting statistic. But the, uh, really, the, the, the final word on this kind of criticism uh, was delivered back in 1944 by Paul Woolley, an historian of note. This is what he had to say. One of the great sources of discontent in the OPC 
malignant discontent is the lack of numerical growth. <clears throat> the church does not increase rapidly. This is true. The church was not founded for the purpose of growing rapidly. The Bible gives no warrant for believing that a church in this day and age should grow rapidly. But rapid growth is an American enthusiasm. It is a national sport. <laughs> Other churches, freak churches, this is Paul Woolley now, <laughs> freak churches, specialty churches, personality churches, grow rapidly. Therefore, let us bend all our energies, say these friends, to make the OPC grow rapidly. Well, so much for that kind of an attack on the OPC, a somewhat vacuous attack at that. We have heard other kinds of accusations. I picked up the telephone this last year and uh, heard the voice of a familiar friend on the other end of the line, one that I had worked with for a long time, endeavoring to bring her into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. She was having a little trouble with the session of the congregation where she was seeking to unite a congregation in our presbytery because they wanted to know the details of her divorce. She uh, happened to call a friend of hers, a Christian counselor in the area, and uh, her re his response to her was, well, after all, those OPs are self-referenced. Self-referenced. That was a new one for me. <laughs> We've been called narrow, uh, nitpicking, doctrinaire, unevangelistic, uh, ecclesiastically vain, the only pure church, OPC, harsh and unresponsive to needs, <clears throat> guilty of a fortress mentality. Well, in all of this, we need to sort out, as I have said, the legitimate criticisms from the rancorous attacks. And we need to listen carefully. Uh, even if we bristle a bit, and uh, again, to emphasize it, if necessary, repent and then get on with the business of the church. <clears throat> but surely we do not need to be engaged in acts of self-immolation, nor should we be cowering in a state of spiritual inertia because someone has attacked us and uh, we're not certain they may not be right. Well, let's look at some of the criticisms that have been offered over the years. I've listed for you in the outline four names. There's a certain progression to them. First one is Francis Schaeffer. We all know uh, how Francis Schaeffer has made an impact in our time, and we can rejoice 
in the effectiveness of his service to the Lord. But it is no secret that uh, he had no particular love for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He was part of the movement originally. Did you know that? Did you know that he was originally an Orthodox Presbyterian? He uh, left the movement, he left the church, however, in 1937 with the split that brought about the Bible Presbyterian Church. He also played a major role in scuttling the 1975 union effort between the OPC and the RPCES. Some judged, after reviewing that synod meeting, that it was Schaefer's speech that really killed the union. So, Francis Schaeffer and his estimations of the OPC. We come at this indirectly, and uh, he treats the subject subtly in one of his books. The book is entitled The Church Before the Watching World. He speaks um, in that book not only about Orthodox Presbyterian forces, but also Bible Presbyterian forces. He praises those forces because they were insistent on the practice of the principle of purity for the visible church. And uh, with that statement, we can uh, add a hearty amen. But then he goes on and he castigates those who were part of that original separatist enterprise. He has in mind the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he castigates those who were a part of that movement for their lovelessness. Now, that has been a charge leveled at the OPC repeatedly. Schaefer happens to have this estimation of the original uh, movement and those who were involved with it, that it was characterized by a lovelessness, and particularly a lovelessness for those who stayed in the old church. Now, he cites as, a, as evidence for this the refusal of those who constituted the new church, the refusal of those to continue the organization that was known as the Constitutional Covenant Union. Now, the Constitutional Covenant Union was sort of a pre-separation organization. And... Uh, its objective was to get together people within the PCUSA who were quite distressed over what was happening in the denomination. But there's one thing you, you have to realize, that uh, written within the Constitution of the Constitutional Covenant Union was a provision that those involved, those signing their name, would do whatever was necessary to bring the case of purity to bear upon the denomination as a whole 
and if they were unsuccessful, to suffer the consequences and even organize a new church. So you see, when those people who were a part of that organization saw the new church take shape, they, in keeping with the very bylaws that they had bound themselves to, saw the effectual end of that constitutional covenant union. Now, it was possible to start a new one, a new organization. And in fact, there are some stories of efforts along those lines. Clarence McCartan was involved in one, for instance. But uh, nothing came of those efforts. At any rate, the point I'm making, even if there was lovelessness, there was still the principial behavior of those who came out of the old church and formed the new. And on the basis of that principle, they concluded that the covenant union, the constitutional covenant union, had served its purpose. What is interesting, however, <clears throat> about the analysis of Schaefer is this. He levels the charge across the board of lovelessness with regard to those who came out of the original church, but then he says nothing about the attitude of those who were involved in a vicious and rancorous schism from the body of which they had become a part through the separatist enterprise. Schaefer separates himself from the OPC. Is he guilty of lovelessness too as he makes that break? Was he guilty of a loveless act and did he ever make public amends for it? Well, at the same time, if the arrow that we are guilty of lovelessness, if that arrow hits the mark, we certainly should respond appropriately. But I do remember Henry Corey making a speech on the floor of the General Assembly when this very sort of attack, this very attack, what had been made by someone within our church, someone, I believe, who was quoting and uh, citing, quoting from and citing Francis Schaeffer. Henry's response was, speak for yourself. Don't presume to speak for me. If you're making the charge of lovelessness, Speak for yourself. I know that as far as my heart is concerned, I was not loveless in my attitudes. And certainly, don't presume to speak for the church as a whole. The next figure is Ed Ryan. In 1947, Ed Ryan, a man of great value to the OPC in the early days, 
the man who wrote the very valuable book, The Presbyterian Conflict, from which many learned about the struggles that led to the organization of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a leader at Westminster Seminary, to boot, left the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and was reordained into the PCUSA after an appropriate repentance. Having reunited with the PCUSA, he ascended the ladder and eventually was appointed an assistant to Dr. James I. McCord, president of Princeton Seminary. So he got back to Princeton finally, and really that's where many people felt he wanted to be all along. At any rate, <clears throat> he returned to the PCUSA in 1947. This he did, so he said, after he studied once more Calvin's Institutes, especially the fourth book of the Institutes that deals with the doctrine of the church. He then, so he said, set himself a course of restudying the scriptures that undergirded that fourth book of Calvin's Institutes. Thus he, thus he came, so he said, to a new appreciation of the 25th chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith and now understood the formation of the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions and the OPC as disruptive to the unity of the church. But he went further. We weren't just disruptive, we were heretics. He charged the OPC with advocating the Anabaptist doctrine of the church, namely that only a pure church is a true church. And since Anabaptist doctrine on the church had been judged heresy by others, he felt comfortable in saying that we were guilty of that heresy. Ryan's argument, therefore, is remarkable. It is clever, if not diabolical. <laughs> to charge the OPC with heresy was to turn the entire separatist argument on its head since the separatists had charged the PCUSA with heresy. Well, first of all, Ryan's estimation is blatantly false. The OPC knows the fourth book of Calvin's Institutes. It knows the confession. It knows what the confession has to say about churches being more or less pure and still being true churches of Jesus Christ. And our ecumenical involvement has been with churches that are, in fact, more or less pure. And that has not stopped us, 
we ourselves being more or less pure, interacting with other churches more or less pure. But more to the point, for a man to enter a church as Ryan was doing, that harbored those who denied the cardinal doctrines of the faith. To enter a church that denied, that harbored those who denied the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, his miracles, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, who questioned the sole sufficiency of the authority of the word of God, to enter a church who had those, who harbored those who denied these carnal doc, cardinal doctrines, was to enter a church that was worse than the Church of Rome. And who was Calvin talking about in the fourth book of the Institutes? Calvin had separated himself from the Church of Rome. And that church wasn't as bad as the church that Ryan now entered. Calvin had written his first, fourth book in part to justify his departure from Rome. And now Ryan appeals to that part of the Institutes to enter a church that is worse far worse. Rome isn't denying the virgin birth, <laughs> isn't denying the Trinity, the sonship of Christ, his deity, his miracles, isn't denying his death on the cross or his bodily resurrection, but the PCUSA is harboring those who do. All right, well, that's Ryan. So much for him. Lay him aside. <laughs> Andrew Kivenhoven. Andrew Kivenhoven. Who's he? <laughs> well, in 1988, the OPC felt conscience bound, conscience bound after 20 years of laboring over the GKN, the Reformed Churches in the Netherlands, to leave the Reformed Ecumenical Synod. We did this because of the GKN's refusal, among other things, to distance itself from its disturbing and distressing position on homosexuality. It was a sad day. <clears throat> Heartbreaking. Afterwards, <clears throat> Andrew Kivenhoven, editor of the Christian Reformed Banner, took that occasion to attack the OPC in print. <clears throat> and this is what he said. Perhaps the OPC is free from the taint of liberalism, Oh. You get the impression this is going to be a bit cynical. <laughs> 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 
Perhaps the OPC <coughs> is free from the taint of liberalism, but it is not without the pride of orthodoxy. As a small church, 15,000 members, you can dismiss that, that thinks that it has all the answers, it ought to dialogue with the GKN, with 600,000 members. Get the weed of the argument here which seems to have <clears throat> only questions. <clears throat> if the OPC separate, separates now and retreats into an ever smaller circle of seceders who share the illusion that all others have forsaken the truth, the OPC will grow sterile. Later on, he refers to us petrifying our solid borders, and then he says something about... Uh, we shouldn't be hiding our gift of life in the freezer. So. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> Description of you. Frozen. <laughs> Frozen chosen, right. <clears throat> Here we are being charged with the pride of orthodoxy and isolationism. Once more, the point seems to have been missed by A.K. that the R.E.S. simply refused after our many efforts, simply refused to live up to its own standard, its own constitution, and had become, and had become unprincipled. And for us to embrace overt evil after repeated appeal is not only irresponsible, it is wicked itself. As one commentator, not from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, pointed out, the OPC is but one of a long list of churches, nine or ten, who have made the same judgment over the years. And because they made the same judgment, they left the RES before we did. John Frame, number four. I really don't know whether I'm up to this after a full week. But uh, in large measure, I think that my lectures have been a response to John Frame in his estimation, in his estimation of me. <clears throat> John has uh, written a very lengthy critique, 23 pages with a three-page addendum. He did this after his departure from the OPC for the PCA. His critique purports to be a theological analysis, but in actual fact, it's more like a, a uh, psychological profile. He uh, <clears throat> lists OP strengths, but admits the one I have been focusing upon in these lectures, and that's for a reason, because he does not consider it a strength. He's aware of it, he does not consider it a strength. He then lists 
the weaknesses of the OPC, 10 of them, most of which seem to be an exposition of the indictment, the OPC is small. He then analyzes what he calls the OPC mentality, and he offers 21 theses in uh, exposing or laying bare that uh, mentality. I won't quote to you all of them, just a few of them. This is what characterizes the OPC according to John. All preaching should use the biblical theological or redemptive historical method exclusively. Application should be de-emphasized or abandoned altogether. I don't know that that characterizes the OPC. Another, Van Til's apologetics is a test of orthodoxy in the OPC. Anyone ignorant of it or who has reservations about it should not be ordained to the eldership. This includes the technical epistemological differences between Van Til and Gordon Clark. I think we should, could definitely raise questions about some of these, some of these points. We should emulate Van Til's hostility towards American evangelicalism, which is one of the worst enemies of the truth. Most how-to teaching in evangelism, church planning, counseling, discerning spiritual gifts, youth work, indeed practical theology in general, is infected by fundamentalism and secularism. It should certainly be avoided in the church and de-emphasized in the seminary, the work of the church is the work of God's supernatural grace, hence the use of techniques is not only useless but heretical. That, that is indicative of the OPC mentality. The theological and practical errors of the Dutch churches are always less serious than the similar theological errors found in other ethnic groups. In worship, all of our attention is to be on God, so there is no place in worship for worrying about the comfort, happiness, well-being of the worshipers. To do that is to cater to man. Churches which grow... <laughs> yeah, write his name down. <laughs> Churches which grow rapid, rapidly are probably compromising in some way. There are 21 of these, <clears throat> and uh, they purport to tell you who you are. <laughs> this is your mentality, according to John. Okay, well, uh, he then analyzes these uh, specific points and uh, fills them out a bit in some of the rest of uh, what he has to say here. I'd like to uh, call attention to some features of uh, 
his analysis, it does raise questions about John's grasp of the historical situation. Here is one of his statements. Many OP people believe, I think, that Machen and his early followers had essentially what I have called the OPC mentality. I don't believe that is true. Machen himself, though unquestionably reformed in his theology, welcomed dispensationalists onto his mission board and other projects. He was happy to have them in the new church. Going on with regard to Machen's goal, his goal was certainly for a national Presbyterian church to replace the PCUSA. I cannot help but think that Machen would have been happier with the direction of the PCA since 1973 than he would have been with the direction of the OPC since 1937. Well, there is at least one historian and scholar who disagrees with John Frame, and his name is Daryl Hart, and I've tried to put before you Mr. Hart's, Dr. Hart's analysis of the situation. I think something else that might be stated at this point, John Meeser has written a very important essay in the Westminster Theological Journal. And in that essay, he is decrying the triumph of new school tendencies in modern American Presbyterianism across the board. And it would seem that uh, from Mr. Meather's uh, analysis of things, uh, what John Frame is suggesting is that Machen was more of a new schooler than an old schooler, and that simply is not the truth. Then we move on to John's conclusion. I conclude that the OPC is going to have to decide eventually what kind of church it wants to be. Those holding the OPC mentality want the denomination to be something very distinctive, very different from the broad tradition of American Presbyterianism, represented by the PCA. If the OPC goes in that direction, I think it will in time become a kind of historical artifact, like the Covenanters, Protestant Reform, Canadian American Reform, and so on. These denominations erred in adopting unscriptural distinctives which appeared to them to be justified by the Reformed tradition, but which in fact were rejected by the majority of Reformed people. Therefore, they have been fairly isolated from American life and even from their Reformed brothers and sisters. Their growth has been small, their contributions relatively insignificant. That is the road along which the OPC mentality will lead. Will it? We move to the appendix where things really get hot. <laughs> so I ask again, why should anyone join the OPC <laughs> when they have the PCA as an alternative? Some possible answers. One, because they are simply ignorant of the facts. 
too, because they have grown up in the OPC and don't want to leave their families and friends. Three, because they have flunked the PCA assessment centers, but will still think they ought, but still think they, they ought to be church planters. Four, because they have some theological hang-up that would prevent them from working in the PCA. Exclusive psalmody, restricted communion, belief that NAE membership compromises our faith, or some elements of the OPC mentality. Five, because they live in a part of the country where the OPC is still viable. Is that Southern California? In uh, 1986, quoting further, despite the terrible vote of the PCA union, on the PCA union, I was largely bullish on the OPC's future. I then urged friends not to realign because the momentum of church planting and evangelism seemed to be attracting mainstream Presbyterians to the OPC whose overall mentality was not much different from the PCA. It then seemed to me that the two denominations would be more and more alike so that the merger would be a new natural result. But my latter experiences in the Presbytery, in the Presbytery of Southern California persuaded me that the long-range trends were otherwise. Essentially, the PCA and the OPC are competitors. And in an even competition, the OPC is bound to lose. It doesn't have the numbers, the workers, the attractiveness, the funds, and I am tempted to say the anointing of the Spirit to compete evenly with the PCA. The problem can be solved by merger. If you can't beat them, join them. Otherwise, the very fact of competition together with the internal trends within the denomination discussed in the body of my paper will push the OPC more and more rapidly into the artifact category. I hope I am wrong about that, but I am pretty sure of this prognosis. Ah, you feeling real good now? <laughs> I don't want to end on the downbeat, and I want you to remember the things that I have said in the lectures throughout the week. The issue is quite serious. Are you viable? Are you a genuine expression of the body of Christ? Is there a sense in which you can glory in your tradition and in your church and be happy about where you are? Can you delight in your Lord? Can you delight in this church, your own particular congregation, in your presbytery? Can you delight in her calling, in her distinctiveness? Can you love her? Will you give your life for her? God may well have <clears throat> some surprises in store for modern-day prophets. The words that John speaks here are not new words. 
They were spoken in the 30s, they were spoken in the 40s. They have been spoken in every decade of the OPC's history. And the OP, by God's providence, is still here, and I believe not moving in a sectarian or an isolationist direction. God forbid. It is not without significance that you exist. You see, those two votes still hang there. In God's providence, you voted to dissolve, and God overruled. You're still here for a purpose, for a reason. It may well be that presently we are weak. I won't deny it. You have the likes of me for a historian. I'm an amateur. We need greater strength. We need strong leadership. And presently, we are without it. But this present time of weakness is God's opportunity. For God will prove himself powerful in the midst of our weakness. It may be that we don't have the leaders of the stature of those in former years. But you're here. Start working on it. Start working on it. And if all you can do is pray, then pray. We're losing a general secretary of home mission, George Haney. He's afflicted with cancer. He can no longer serve. He is resigned. Who's going to fill his position? Pray, will you? Pray. There are struggles in the presbyteries and within the congregations. Please, you men who are responsible, who can be responsible, do your work. We train for other things. We take many things in life quite seriously. Let's train for the work of the kingdom and take the work of the church most seriously. As to the future, to what should we look? Should we look for a revival, maybe a 20th century, 21st century reformation? Should we look to have a bigger part in the American or worldwide pie? Are these the things upon which we will focus our attention? 
will we be interrupted by and distracted by numerics and statistics? Or will our eye be trained upon Christ in his glory and Christ in his coming? I'm not looking for a revival. I'm not looking for a reformation. I'm not looking even for greater influence in the American scene. I'm looking for the coming of Christ, his return. Knowing that when he comes, the fullness of that inheritance which he has promised to me will be granted. And what will that inheritance be? A piece of real estate someplace? A corner in the garden restored? Some piece of uh, this creation? Or the stuff of the new heavens and the new earth? No, you see, the inheritance for which I long is God himself. He is my portion. That's what God intended all along, that he would be the inheritance and the possession of his people. You see how beautiful then the first answer is in the shorter catechism to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Beyond the particularities of culture, nation, beyond the constraints and ideology, beyond this world, this creation, there is that inheritance fully ours, God himself, and upon that we must concentrate. To that we must dedicate ourselves. Am I wrong? I remind you of Romans eight seventeen. We are heirs of God. joint heirs with Christ. You are inheriting God. He is your possession. And God will faithfully, freely give himself to all who are faithful to the heavenly calling. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's will to give you 